Hello and welcome to episode 113 of Lunar Poetry Podcast. My name is David Turner. This episode is in two parts and coming up later on is poet and blogger Chrissy Williams chatting to Aman Haider about his debut collection at Harge, which is out through Pend in the Margins. Up first though is a conversation I had with bilingual poet Leo Boyks. We met up in London last month mainly with a view to discuss Invisible Presence, a developmental platform for British Latino writers which Leo has established alongside Natalie Taylor and which is the first of its kind in the UK. But as with a lot of these conversations and the fact I don't really make any notes before I meet my guests, we didn't really get around to chatting about that much. Instead, we spent most of our time chatting about translating poetry from one language to another, the different processes at play when Leo writes in either English or Spanish, why Leo doesn't translate his own writing and the positive influences that various writing collectives have had on his own writing. As always, a full transcript of this conversation is available to download on our website, lunarpoetrypodcast.com. Now, this and all future intros will be shorter than on previous episodes. From now on, I'll return at the end of the podcast with an outro. Apparently, a four-minute intro at the beginning of an episode that is an hour and 20 minutes in length is just too long for some people. But I love you all. Say anything for you, know what I mean? Here's Leo. Oh yeah, one more thing. If you like this or any of our episodes, then please do tell your friends and loved ones. It's the most effective way for us to reach new listeners, especially since we don't advertise or have any budget for that. Hello, I'm Leo Boyks. I'm a poet and writer and also a journalist and educator. I was born in Argentina but came to the UK in 1996. I have two collections in Spanish published in Argentina in 2015 and 2017 and I'm working towards my first English collection um, hopefully coming out next year. So I will read a poem called The Sonambulist. Counts backwards, as if there was a language just for chairs. Sluggish, from evening until noon, which hazel he has not planted. Wait for that unknown light. Oblique moth equilibrium, iridescence, a timed retreat to the garden, and wait. And wait, retreat to the garden, iridescence, a timed oblique moth equilibrium. Wait for that unknown light, which hazel he has not planted. Sluggish from evening until noon, as if there was a language just for chairs. Count backwards. Thank you very much, Leo. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Um, and that poem has appeared in the PM Review, is that right? Yeah. Um, which issue? Uh, it's the latest issue. In the latest um, issue. There are going to be five poems of mine. Yeah. And, and this is one of the poems. It's a poem that um, started in Spanish. I published a, a version of this poem in, in, a, in my first collection in Spanish. 
and I reworked it in um, in English. Yeah. Uh, and it's a specular poem. Yes. Yeah. Good. And for those that don't know what a specular poem is, actually, I will quickly say that if you want to see how the physical form of this poem, you can download or go over to the website Lunar Poetry Podcast and get the transcript in which you'll be able to see the physical form or go out and buy a PM review, for God's sake, <laughs> support uh, literary yes. magazines. But it's basically, if people imagine an hourglass split down the middle vertically, that might, it's sort of like cinched in at the waist, but it sort of repeats itself in reverse. Exactly. You can play around with um, punctuation a little bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much how it works. I, I wrote a few specular poems. I tend to like this form. I wrote another poem called The Fool, and yes, I, I do like it. Uh, I think it works for me what's better in English. I do write in both languages, in Spanish and English. Uh, but it's a, it's a form that kind of, yeah, it, for me... It Could you works. give us any idea of, as to why it doesn't lend itself to writing in Spanish? I don't know. It's, it's very difficult to, to say. Um, I try it many times, mm. but um, it's almost, it doesn't work for me. I tend to write differently in Spanish and English. Um, I never translate my, my work from one language to, to the other. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm a different poet, completely different poet in Spanish and English. Yeah. Almost completely different, um, the way that I write, the, the imagery, the sensibility in a way. You know, I was born in Argentina, Spanish is my, my mother tongue, so I, it feels like it's inside me and it comes unfiltered somehow and English is outside me and okay. I can see it kind of physically, I can mould it. Oh, that's um, interesting. Then exactly. How this form might then lend itself to the, the moulding of the words as well. Exactly. Yes, very much so. It's almost like um, I can see it and it's like a sculpture. Yeah. Where in Spanish, it kind of, it's difficult. I could, you know, try many times, but I, I prefer my English versions. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of a, a quote. I have these half-built or half-constructed quotes from constructivist artists. Um, Russian artist running through my head but it, it's something about some mediums allow you to withdraw something from yourself and some mediums you are extracting meaning from a form mm, yes. and how ultimately it can be the same person it can be the same ideas but certain ideas mm. will mean an extraction from yourself or something from a form yes yes I agree does that ring with yes uh, yes, yes yeah. very much so yes it's interesting because um, when my, my first collection in Spanish, I wrote it not thinking much about form. And when I started writing in, in English a couple of years ago, it was the opposite. Uh, maybe because I, uh, I went to different courses, the poetry school, and I, I was much more aware of form uh, when I started writing in, in English. And then when I wrote my second collection in Spanish, in a way I was, you know, I was aware of, of Form yeah. very much so. Although you know, I'm I always I was a big fan of uh, Borges, for instance, and his sonnets. So it was always there. But um, you know, when I when I sat down and, and wrote uh, poetry, it wasn't you know, especially Spanish. I, it wasn't in my in my mind at that time. Is there also a a safety net involved in a in a poetic form if you're coming into it with a second language? In that the structure there is provided for you, isn't it? So. A, Presumably, I've had this a little bit when I've, I, I speak Norwegian and I try to write a bit in Norwegian just for fun, really. But I think it, I'm at that stage with my Norwegian that it would be too much to consider finding the words mm. and then allowing a form to come out. And yes. I think I would probably need to choose a form first exactly. and try and fit Yeah, it, it happens to me. It's almost like I, I decide on a structure and then it's easier for me to kind of build you know, a poem around it. Or sometimes I write a poem and I real immediately realise, oh, actually this 
is a sonnet or it will work as a sonnet. It was really interesting. Two years ago, we did a, a retreat as part of the Complete Works with Mimi Calvati and, uh, and it was a, a session on sonnets and it was just brilliant. Um, I learned so much from, from then. I wrote a few sonnets that I'm um, yeah, quite happy with, um, uh, but she was quite instrumental. We'll come on to the Complete Works in a moment. I mean, you already suggested that you will write in Spanish or English. Have you attempted to translate anybody else's work? I've been doing it for a couple of years, and it's something that I really enjoy doing, you know, translations, especially cultural translations and versions. And um, I started with um, a poet called um, Jorge Eduardo Eilson. He's a, a Peruvian poet. He was better known as an artist, uh, primarily, and, but he was a great, great poet. He lived. He, he was born in Peru, but lived most of his life in in Italy. And I just bought a book uh, in Madrid, and I just I loved the poems. I just found them ex exquisite. So I I just decided to translate some of the poems. I realized that there weren't, there weren't any books in English of his poetry, and then when I wrote the poems, I wrote versions of the poems, like my my own sort of. Um, responses so it was almost like a dialogue between him and, and me he died in 2006 so I felt this kind of personal connection with him and also by doing translations I was so you know looking at you know the lines each word and the context I was so involved with with his poetry and his life that it felt right to sort of have this kind of have a dialogue so I did this kind of three column sequence of poems um, and they were pu actually published in MPT, Modern Poetry Translation, last year. And then uh, I'm, I'm still translating his work. And also I'm, um, I translated another Peruvian poet called Jose Watanabe, who is, is a great poet. He died uh, in 2007, I think. And, and I did a few translations that, again, were published in MPT quite recently, actually in the, in the, in the current issue. So I'm constantly looking at uh, Latin American poets unknown here or not very well known and trying to translate their work into English. Uh, although that's actually a, a no-no for us. Sort of, you know, I'm, I was born in Argentina, my mother tongue is, in, is, in, is Spanish and I should be doing the other, the other way around. I should be translating from English to Spanish. But um, I just found it amazing. It's just such a fascinating process because it's, it's so creative and so, yeah, you're just so involved in, in, into the, the, the work. Yeah, I'm, hopefully we're going to, at some point this year, have a conversation, uh, the podcast and modern poetry and translation, having a conversation about the mechanics of translation, because I find the whole thing fascinating. My very good friend, Nils Christian Repstad, is a fantastic um, Norwegian poet. And he hasn't really had much work translated, and I don't feel currently like my Norwegian is good enough to attempt it. Though I do feel I have enough of a, a relationship with him personally mm. to know what he means through his poetry. Mm. Because that's such an important part, isn't it, of the translation. It's not, I mean, you can start with a word-for-word -word translation, but then that doesn't necessarily give you a poem, or so necessarily it definitely won't give you a poem. How much do you feel... After the fact, how much of the translation is the original poet's work and how much is yours? And, and, and then how much of that is necessary, you know, for it to work? Yeah, I mean, in the case of Ailson, um, it took me, you know, months and months because I was... Um, at, the, at first, I wanted to be a purist. I wanted to translate 
almost word by word. And then I realized that I, there was something missing. The musicality was, you know, rhyme, in, in, internal rhyme. There were all these things I felt that, you know, I had to work, you know, on those things. And then I added a few, you know, when you translate, you're constantly making choices of words. So, yeah, that process took me a long, a long time. And then by writing the versions, by writing these sort of responses, like actually, in some cases, line by line, just replying to his poems line by line, I realised that, you know, I went back to the original, my original translation and retouching um, things, words or, you know, it was almost like, a, it really felt like a conversation between us. And it's interesting because I was reading recently this book by Ursula Le Guin and Diana Velesi, uh, a great Argentinian poet, and they became friends. Uh, Diana Velesi didn't speak a word of English and Ursula Le Guin's Spanish wasn't really good. And they became friends and they decided to translate each other's poems. And they produced this book, Las Gemelas, Un Sueño, The Twins, uh, A Dream, something like that. And, uh, and it's a brilliant book because um, you can see in the poems you know, the choices that you know, they made. And I was thinking how they, you know, by not knowing the language, they probably exchanged many, many letters and, and, um, and you know, looked at dictionary. And it's such a fascinating process. And actually the end result is, is, is brilliant because it's almost like uh, reading each other's work and sort of uh, talking about the, 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 you know, each other's work as well so in such a uh, meaningful way. You could actually see it in, in the book. It was a book published in 97. And I went back and actually my idea is to do a little bit of that with Diana. Diana Willis to translate some of her work in, into English here in the UK and work with her, hopefully, yeah. I think I'm going to use this opportunity to, for any listeners that are interested in the process of translation, signpost that the Poetry Translation Centre offers some really excellent workshops and they offer workshops in which you don't need to know the language of the poet because mm -hmm. it's, as you're saying, it's more about grasping the feeling that is trying to be conveyed. Just before we move on to another subject, it must have been a fascinating process for you in terms of how you then write in English if you've gone so deeply into someone else's work and mm. try to think about how best that would work then in English. Mm, yes, I mean, my, I mean, I remember that I started writing in English just a few years ago, mm. not very long, and I've been here for like over 20 years or almost 20 years. But for years, I, I only wrote in Spanish and I, you know, I read in English, I read lots of poets uh, in English. It took me lots of years to realise that, you know, all my friends are here in the UK and I, I should actually start writing my, my, my poems in English. And that transition from Spanish to English, it was actually quite daunting at, at first. And then it just it was kind of amazing because it felt like I, I had another, another door open for me. And as I said, you know, because I write quite differently, it's almost like, you know, you know, I, I, I can choose and it's, it's kind of fun and, yeah. and, and, and write. And the tr trans translation is, is part of it in a way, because it's almost like navigating these two worlds. When, when I write my, my poetry uh, in, in English and then uh, sometimes I ask people to translate into Spanish and the other way around. I never translate my work. It feels like I do write in, you know, in, in different languages. That's very interesting. Going back to my friend Nils in Norway, his English is, is definitely competent enough, but he doesn't feel like he can, in the same way, he can't, or doesn't feel confident that he could transcribe it into mm. English. Mm. I suppose 
again, I don't have enough experience of it, but in the, in the process of translation, do you have to destroy it before you can create it again? And as an artist, do you want to do that to your own work? Is that maybe yeah. part of the trouble? Yes, 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 definitely. You've got to pull it apart, haven't you? Yes, to, yeah. yes, yes. And also I remember, you know, I was part of this collective a few years ago called SLAP, um, Spanish and Latin American Writers and Poets, and we would read poems in, mostly in Spanish, to, sometimes to English, English audiences. And I was, you know, people sometimes, you know, wouldn't understand the, the, the language. And I thought to myself, what if I translate this into English? And, and I did. And I think it's, it's a different, it's a different uh, sort of experience translating your own work. It's, I feel like it's not, um, it's better when I write in English straight away. Yeah. It feels like it's, it's more, it's truer to, to who I am. In, in English, rather than, than translating um, myself, the another poem from Spanish to English. So you touched on the Complete Works earlier. I'd like to talk about that programme for a bit and the influence uh, and the, the effect that that had on your writing. But maybe you could just briefly explain to the listeners what that programme is and how it came about and how you got involved with it. Um, yeah, it's basically a, a, a national scheme to promote the work of British poets from uh, different backgrounds. And I was the first Latino uh, British poet who involved in, in, in the scheme. I was part of the third series of, of uh, the Complete Works. And, and it's a scheme, it's a really successful scheme in the sense that uh, it really catapulted um, many poets, you know, now that are really well known, um, including um, Sarah Howe, uh, she won the T.S. Eliot Prize, and Mona Arshi, she won the Full Prize, and, and many other poets. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a great scheme. It was, uh, you know, I was so happy that I, 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 I got it. It's, a, it's, you know, you had to um, present a series of poems and there's, it's a very um, thorough process of selection. And, and you know, in my, in my case, the, the group was so diverse. Um, we have Mom Tassa Mary, for instance, or Victoria and Aduke, or Will Harris, or Yomi Chode, or you know, Ian Humphreys, there's so many different uh, poets, brilliant, brilliant poets. So it was a really enriching, really inspiring uh, two years for me. And I, you know, by the end of the process, there's an anthology published by Bloodaxe. And, you know, we went to and, and did some readings in, in London and Manchester. Um, so it's a great way of showcasing your work. So it was, it was brilliant. I, I, I really enjoyed it. And for me, it was, it was crucial because I felt like part of a collective, part, part of a group. I, I felt that before I was a little bit on my own. I mean, I was part of, as I said before, I was part of this collective of Latin American and you know Spanish poets, but it felt a little bit more isolated or, or ghettoish, you know, where we were sort of doing events and um, readings. But it, it was always for people interested in Latin American poetry, or um, and this was a completely different thing. It was pretty much for everyone. It was a big challenge for me because it was all in English and it was, um, you know, it felt like, you know, now is the time to do it. And, um, and I had, um, uh, my mentor was uh, Michael Schmidt, director of uh, Carconet uh, Press and um, an editor of PN Review. Um, so we worked together for two years, editing poems and polishing poems. And so it was, it was great. It was, it was actually really um, inspiring um, scheme. And as a result of that, I, uh, I started this new uh, scheme called Invisible Presence, 
which is a sort of smaller version of the complete works and it's for British Latino poets and writers. And I'm, I'm, I'm running this um, scheme with Natalie Tetlia. She's also the director of the complete works. I just wanted to ask, before we get on to talking about Invisible Presence, because whilst there are so many links between the two things, there are essentially very different schemes and set up for different reasons. And mm. I just wanted to, I think, maybe challenge a sort of commonly held assumption that poets are poets because they're happy to isolate themselves and be, you know, and sort of, um, sort of loneliness is an important part of their practice. And I, I really refute that quite strongly. And, mm. and, and it seems to be, that seems to only be supported when you talk to people that have been part of these schemes and how nice it, how, how important it was for them to suddenly feel part of the group mm. and to feel, I think maybe more so, especially with the complete works and things like, um, Malika's Kitchen, when that first started, Malika's Poetry Kitchen, when you have certain people that would, in the Arts Council scheme of things, be, be described as marginalised voices or mm -hmm. from marginalised backgrounds. Yeah. But I really think that that feeling of communality does feed into everyone. I think it's a, um, it's a real shame that we don't all get the chance to sit around. Yes. Sort of why this podcast exists yes. is because, although it's me having a conversation with one person, it then goes out to hundreds, hopefully hundreds or thousands of people mm, um, mm. to share in that conversation, have that link with writers. Yes, yes. I felt that because, you know, as a, as a, as a migrant, as an immigrant from, from South America, you know, you feel, well, I felt a little bit isolated anyway uh, because of language barriers at the beginning and then cultural differences. So for me, it felt I was, you know, always writing as, you know, as a journalist as well, working on my own. And this was a great opportunity to literally be part of a, a sort of a, a group and, and sort of a wider, a wider collective. Uh, some other poets from, from the scheme, you know, had a chance of um, be part of groups in the UK already. So um, for me, it was, yeah, was, was great, it was, was brilliant. And, and I learned a lot. We had lots of... Um, seminars and, and workshops. As I said, we went to a retreat. Um, we had um, Mimi Calvati and Pascal Petit um, working with us for a week, for an entire week, uh, with tutorials and, and, and readings, and it was brilliant. It may be one of the things that you've already mentioned about the highlights, but is there one thing that you would look back and think, well, that was an amazing moment that really opened the way that I thought about my writing? Was there anything, just as, just as an example, so my most recent guest in episode 112 is the fantastic Mary Jean Chan mm. and whilst she wasn't part of the complete works she talked about how Natalie Taylor almost gave her permission to write about fencing mm. which which Mary Jean had felt was too banal a subject mm. when she wanted to write about uh, gender and sexuality issues but then how permission to write about something seemingly mundane to her mm. allowed her more freedom to yeah. express those things anyway. Yes. I just wondered if there's any... Yeah, any it's interesting that you mentioned Natalie because she was crucial to me because um, she came to one of our readings with SLAP, with the Latin American Collective, and she heard us and she came to me and she said, you know, I love you to start writing in English and, and I love to read something in English. And so we started working together and she, she was amazing. She encouraged me to write about themes that I was about nature, for instance, or myth, or folklore, or uh, even um, uh, gender um, issues as well. She was crucial, she was really crucial, and she, um, 
even during the complete works, um, doing workshops with her, um, it just gave me a lot of confidence to, to you know, be able to uh, write and show what I was doing. Yeah, I think she was, she was quite crucial, I have to say, for, for me. And during the complete works, the two years, I guess, you know, that residency, that retreat with Mimi and Pascal was, was very important because we looked at individual poems and with, with both, both of them and, um, and they gave me great ideas and, and, and encouragement. And yeah, that, that week was very special, I think, for me. But as well, actually, I have to say that the, the readings, because uh, it, for the first time we read all together and it felt really that I was part of something uh, special. As I said before we started recording, I only know Natalie online, as is quite common when you work on poetry projects, you via Twitter and Facebook and so many things, you, you feel like you know people and it actually matter. But it does feel like in... 10 years time or maybe even sooner people are going to be talking about her in the same way that they talk about Jacob Samuel-Rose at Barbican Young, Young Poets and Malika Booker who's, mm. who's uh, Malika's Poetry Kitchen has gone on to touch so many poets yeah. careers at the start at the very start and similarly with Jacob but I mean, it does feel at times where you're two steps away from Jacob with any poet in, <laughs> in Britain at the moment especially now when they all seem to be winning awards as well yes. and he's done some fantastic work and it seems that Natalie quite selflessly is having the same effect on a lot of writers. Yeah, well. and it was very important for me because um, um, she lived in Argentina a few years. I think she was born in Argentina. I think so, yeah. Yeah, so there is this link with Argentina and also she did a PhD on uh, Argentinian poets So and she's bilingual. So for me it was, it was brilliant because um, she allowed me to express myself in such a way that, um, you know, it's such a unique thing. And also... She, you know, was when I was writing at the beginning in Spanish, in English. She she encouraged me to use Spanish words or Spanglish words, and and that was really liberating because I felt like I would never be able to cross, you know. Uh, and she was like, "You can, you you know, you're allowed, you, you can do it." And it's it's uh, empowering, and you know, it's important for you to do it. So she gave me that permission in a way, and I learned I learned that with her. She seems to be very good at giving permission. Um, <laughs> Mary Jane said exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. I think we'll take a second poem, please, Leo. At this yeah. point. So I, I'm going to read a poem called Rio Nuevo, and and it's a poem about uh, a river that suddenly appeared. Um, just a few years ago in the middle of Argentina because of the overworking of, of the land in Argentina, because of the appearance of these large groups uh, that are growing uh, soya beans and they are destroying the land, uh, um, changing the landscape. And it's a, it's a, major, it's a major preoccupation in, in now in Argentina. And I wrote this poem, Rio Nuevo. Huge mounts of earth, upturned grass, eucalyptus logs carried along the surface. Around soya farms, land gaped open like a canyon. Terra filmers revenge. Water rushed down a deep gully, carved beyond the wire fences of Argentinian flatlands. Abject sludge pumped through Cuenca del Morro Basin, chiseled a network of waterways, ravines, 
a new river appeared, the Rio Nuevo, rich marquetry of woods, bosques, grasslands, natural sponges, now gone for tassels of maize, soya beans, all in rows. Large agro-groups kill the native forest to plant this new golden crop, la soja. Deep-rooted trees replaced by tiny rhizomes that grow fast, barely touching the ground, only there a few weeks per year. New owners didn't rotate their crops. A Martian landscape rapidly arose. As soil shifted, gave up under its own weight, breathless, falling behind. Locals sensed buried flows. Nothing was permeable. Shallow tunnels sprung up. Erosion hastened, turned streams into deep, wide trenches. Campesinos clawed at unstable cliff walls. A clod of soil dissolved in their hands. It's basically dust. Es como polvo. In the middle of a field, a giant canyon drops abruptly away. Currents rush at the bottom. The land has been cleft in two. An electricity pole on each side of the bank, its cables still attached to rods leaning sideways. Rusty old nails to hang bouquets of artificial flowers. Pampero storm gathers force. Wind follows. It laughs out loud, carrying bleached, sterile seeds. Thank you very much, Leo. One more question about language, because I don't want the, the whole conversation to be about that, but how often do Spanish words and phrases appear in your English poems? Um, it's interesting. Sometimes, uh, not at all. Sometimes I write poems without any Spanish words. And sometimes, um, especially when I'm talking about something that relates directly to either Argentina or South America, I tend to use m more words mm -hmm. in, in Spanish. Sometimes you, you guess the meaning of the word by the context. Uh, sometimes there's no, no way of knowing. You have to go to a dictionary. Sometimes I like it because the way that it sounds in Spanish, because it kind of goes well, um, you know, the, the music of the, the, the sound or how it looks on the page. Uh, so, uh, so there are many reasons. Um, I recently wrote quite a long sequence uh, called Pombero, uh, and it's a kind of a, it's a story about a, a mythical figure in, in South America, in, mostly in Argentina, Brazil and, and Paraguay. And I used a lot of Spanish words, mostly places or plants or trees or birds that are, you know, specifically from that area. And it, it feels a very Latin American poem um, because, you know, he comes from that region. And also I included words not only from Spanish, but from Guarani, because it's a, it's a mostly Guarani um, myth. Um, Guarani is a, it's a, re, it's a sort of um, uh, indigenous uh, language coming from, from that part of the world. And also Pombero is, is a Spanish 
uh, name, but there are uh, Warani names for this a particular creature. Uh, and it's an interesting story because he's, uh, he protects nature, plants, uh, rivers, uh, and, and goes after people who destroys nature, uh, or overfish, or over uh, kill animals. Um, so he can be a protector of nature, but he can be also quite nasty towards people, uh, like uh, especially towards women, uh, unbaptized women, and uh, women with single children. So this really ambiguous figure. People still believe in, in his powers and, and they leave rum or tobacco outside their doors and, and, and there's not much written about him. There's a lot of oral tradition. So I, I, um, I was fascinated by this story and, and I wrote this long sequence. And yeah, going back to what you were saying, I used a lot of Spanish words. It felt right to, to, yeah, to do it. Yeah, so that's interesting what you're saying about using the words, uh, Spanish words in English poems when, um, the, when the main body is, is in English and it sort of makes sense that if you're referring to something that is from a region where the, the first language is, is Spanish it would make sense to use that. I, I think what I was ultimately working up to is what do you, and you sort of did touch on this a little bit as well, about what you might expect the reader to do afterwards, but what, where do you feel the obligation lies as to who then explains what these words mean. As a poet, do you feel like that's it, the work's gone out and then it's up to you if you want to know what this means? Mm. It's then up to you to search or, mm. or do you feel in some cases it's necessary to put footnotes or explanations? I wonder if sometimes, you've ever, ever played around with that. Yeah, sometimes it really, it feels, the poem tells me that it's fine to use a few words that you, know, you might not know uh, the meaning of. Uh, and sometimes uh, it's the other way around. I, I, I do feel like, I need to clarify it for the sake of the for the poem. I remember writing this long poem in three large stanzas uh, called England, um, and it was uh, quite a surreal poem. So it was already quite yeah quite surreal. So I felt like you know when I used a few Spanish words, I wanted to clarify them a little bit. Otherwise, it would be like too much confusion. But in other cases, it really works quite well. I think. When, when you, you might not know the, the, the meaning of the word and you might guess because of the context or, yeah. Yeah, it's something that I, I, I'm really conscious about when, I'm, when I write in, 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 in English, but also in Spanish. Uh, in Spanish, I use a few English words and I remember doing a reading in, in Buenos Aires and I used a few words in English and it was, you know, it felt completely different because English there has a completely different, you know, political charge because of you know, the Falklands, for instance. And I remember one person came to me afterwards and said, you know, you, you could use that word in Spanish. Why are you using that word in English? And I explained to him, you know, I live in the UK. I've been living in the UK for 20 years. English is part of my daily life. And well, we, we talk and we discuss it. And, and it was a really interesting um, discussion. But it felt like, um, yeah, it was quite a um, strong, strong reaction there. But I think, in, in, you know, I probably use more Spanish words in my English poems than the, the other way around. But mostly because I, at the moment, I'm writing more, definitely more in, in English. But yeah, it's, it's something that, that I'm, I'm aware of and, and, and fascinated by this, this, these debates. Even when I read other poets, um, I've been reading a lot of uh, Latino poets, poets who are uh, working in the, in the US at the moment, uh, who are either from South America or third, second or third generation Latinos. 
and using lots of Spanish words. Um, for instance, I don't know, people like Javier Zamora or Natalie Diaz or Francisco Alarcón, for instance, he, he, uh, he used to actually write in Spanish and then he did uh, you know, another column in, in English. Uh, so it was two columns. And he became very well known in, in the US as the first sort of Chicano poet writing in Spanish and English and um, publishing in, in, the, in the US. But you have people like Lorna de Cervantes and she used loads of Spanish words, sometimes not even translate whole lines in Spanish, not translating and the, the, the lines. So there was, it felt really political. They were making a, a case that you know, some of these poets came out of the Chicano movement in the 1960s and 70s and there was a reason why using those Spanish words uh, was so important, I think, for them. So in a way, I, I, I drew lots of inspiration from, from them. I mean, there is a, I feel, you know, I'm a Latino poet. My experience here is completely different from, from the Chicano poets in the US, for instance. But, um, you know, uh, I'm still part of, I feel part of that family in a way, the larger family, part of that collective in the UK, yeah. My own writing contains quite, a, I say quite a lot, a, a fair amount of Norwegian, considering that it was a language that I learned much later. I didn't move to Norway until I was 28, so it's not like a, 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 I don't have Norwegian parents. So I didn't mm. live in Scandinavia as a youngster. I just moved there as an adult and, and learned the language. But I'm, yeah, I'm quite interested in the gap between the literal translation and the actual meaning in the first mm. language. Mm. Um, and I think when I first started learning Norwegian, I was fascinated by words like tanshat, which means the gum, but literally mm. means uh, tooth meat. Mm. In mm -hmm. when you break the two words down, yeah, yeah, and I found those, and especially as I'm interested in poetry anyway, in writing, mm. I found those gaps and those because once you do translate, you do get rid of the meaning because you mm. translate it directly as gum, yes, and you lose the root of the word. Um, but I was sort of giggling to myself a little bit in, internally when you were mentioning about some of these writers when it was seen as a political mm. statement mm. because when I do it, it's just seen as being too bloody clever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and like a typical poet being yeah. deliberately deceptive and trying yes, to remove yeah. as much meaning yes. as possible. But, but yeah, for instance, the case of Lorna de Cervantes, she was born in the US from a Mexican, fam from Mexican family and she was forbidden to speak Spanish because um, uh, remember she lived in San Francisco and um, there was a lot of racism against the Latinos in San Francisco and the Spanish or Hispanic um, community there. So the family was, you know, forced her to not speak Spanish. So when she started writing um, the, the, her poems, she used a lot of these words and, um, and it, that's why it felt so powerful because it felt like she, she was rebelling against that. And also, you, as I said before, you, you know, writing whole lines. So really, I felt really powerful. But I, sometimes I guess because I'm bilingual, I, I get I get that. I wonder if you're not bilingual, if you're just a, an English reader and you read those poems that you feel that you're left out. You, you don't, when, when there's so much uh, Spanish there uh, or so much of a language that you don't understand. Uh, sometimes I just guess. But um, I, I like that sort of challenge. Even, even when I read something that it's, you know, I don't wholly comprehend, I, I love that. Um, and it's definitely loaded as well, isn't it? If you're going from, because English comes with so much weight and expectation that everyone globally will know roughly what you mean. So it comes with that sort of connotation as well. Yes. And I haven't yet had a guest on that is firstly an English speaker, 
but is then bilingual mm -hmm. and chooses to write in their second language mm -hmm. and drops in English words. Yes. Because then that would probably would be viewed as arrogance mm -hmm. rather than any anything else. Yes. And just the assumption that you would know what these English words mean. Yes. Whereas yes. For, for yourself, with English being your second language, mm. it's seen, and hopefully rightly so, as an exploration as, of your mm. bilingual nature. Yes. So yes. it is interesting how it works in the two directions. But I, I get what you mean about, yeah, is that political message seen by mm. a solely English-speaking person mm. or are they just... Yes. Oh, this is just. I might just scan over that line. Yes. You're sort of relying on them then to go and look it up. Or, uh. Yeah, exactly. Uh, recently, I was um, doing a course at the poetry school about Latino poetry and poetics, and during one of the workshops, um, there were three uh, English-speaking um, poets, uh, one from Australia, I think, and, and uh, from the US, from the UK, and we were doing a workshop with Spanish words, and I asked them to use some of these words into the kind of English poems, even if they didn't know the, the meaning. And, and, and this uh, poem, a poet uh, said to me, but, uh, you know, am I allowed to write? I'm not a Latin American, and, you know, I, I don't have any connections to South America. I've just been to Argentina recently, and, and I was just, yeah, try, try and see what happens. And she actually wrote a really good poem, um, and she used a few words in Spanish and in the context of this, you know, travelling, tra go, going to Argentina. So it felt like... Um, yeah, she was quite wary about using a word of, you know... I, I suppose, and that is a, an, a serious consideration for a lot of... I don't mean to stereotype it in this way, but I would say probably mainly younger writers in with so much political awareness around appropriation and, mm. and what you take from your mm. travels around the world mm. and how much you're allowed to pick up. But I suppose it's all to do with the awareness of whether it's appropriate mm. or not for you to do it. And then yeah. that will tell you whether you can use that phrase or yeah. use a reference to a certain culture. Yeah, yeah. So you were saying that you use sometimes uh, Norwegian... Uh, yeah, because I, I just feel that they... Norwegian language represents a very defined part of my life mm. for a start. Mm. And if I'm writing about a time or an event that happened during that time, right. usually some Norwegian will come out of that. And you, you will include some of those words in yeah, the poetry? Yeah, I I've, was first... Um, it wasn't the first time I spent any time in a psychiatric unit, but it was the first time I was diagnosed with being bipolar. And I then spent, it was a very odd, time, mm. odd period of my life, I spent a few occasions in psychiatric units in Norway. So then yeah. that mental health awakening mm. or Happen. coming to terms with being bipolar happened mm. in Norwegian, yeah. which is a very strange experience yeah. because my Norwegian wasn't quite good enough to, right. to, to sort of comprehend So you weren't, you weren't bilingual then? Well, or? I was talking Norwegian, but... I would say I was conversational level. I would say that I'm fluent now, but I was yes. sort of more conversational. And then plus, when you're talking to psychiatrists, it's mm. a completely different language yes. in yes. and of itself, you know, medical language. Quite often, if I'm writing about my mental health, a lot of Norwegian mm. phrases will come up mm. because I was, so, it was such a formative experience in terms of coming to terms with living with this uh, yes. condition. So, yeah, it's, it's strange how a lot of times when I think about shame or guilt, Oh, mm. really, I consider it odd. I suppose uh, if I spoke to a psychiatrist, it would be very obvious to them why I do it. But I yes. often feel uh, the Norwegian language will often come up in my mind if mm. I'm trying to express those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. I feel the same when I'm writing about something related to South America or Argentina or even my, my own family or family experience. I, I would definitely use a Spanish word, like a title of a song or because it kind of 
places that poem in my mind to that specific place, uh, you know, region or, 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 or even like a time of my life. Remember I left Buenos Aires when I was 20, 1920. So I spent, you know, half my life, you know, in, in, in Argentina and half, half in, in the UK. It's, fun, it's funny that you mentioned song lyrics there. I, I think in English I make a... When I'm thinking about a poem, if I ever add Norwegian words to it, I'm far more inclined to include Norwegian song lyrics. And I would never do it in English because mm -hmm. I think I've got a bit of a hang-up that it's maybe slightly cliché mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. to include pop songs and, yes, and, yes. and pop culture references. But yes. it's happened a few times in Norwegian. Mm -hmm. yeah. and it's, but I think it also when I was learning... Norwegian mm. I was becoming I could suddenly it, it was amazing for me but the first time I could understand a Norwegian song on the radio mm. because it meant that I'd actually yes. come quite a long way with yes, yes. Um, but, the languages so. yeah this this whole thing with language is really interesting I remember speaking with my dad and he told me I don't understand why you know you, you're now in the UK in the sense that you know, I was really bad with languages. My English was terrible at school. I, I, I promised never to learn another language. I was terrible with languages and ended up living in the UK and learning, learning English. And I remember the first few years, I really, I really struggled. I, I was really, um, you know, I had to learn. I didn't speak a word of English when I came. A word, I was just completely, it was terrible. So that process was actually quite complicated and, and, and sort of, after years of, of being here, I, I sort of befriended English and it just, um, it's almost like it's part of my life and yeah, the way I think, you know, it, it's, it's, it's fascinating what happens with language um, and poetry is a great place to explore those things. And I suppose um, going back to the conversation about translation, I think we forget too easily how emotive language is mm -hmm. and how, what the emotional attachment is and, that, and I suppose that's why these phrases in other languages pull themselves up or dredge themselves up because they're so emotionally charged aren't they there's mm -hmm. a there's something and I suppose that's the the whole point of trying to write a poem is to communicate that in the first place and yes. the, 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 all these short bits of writing that we're leaving in the world are just attempts to yes. leave bits of ourselves <laughs> yes you know, yes and these memories yes in, um, in, the, in the anthology, the 10, the anthology, um, part of the complete works, I wrote a, a long piece, it's called Ode to Deal. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a poem divided in, in different sections. And it's interesting, I, I was using indentation to mark the places where I was going, going back to Argentina. So it was, it's, it's a constant, you know, I'm writing in London, in, sorry, in Deal in the UK and then back to Argentina and there's a little intention. And I use word, Spanish words in those places, in those parts of the poem. And visually, you can, it's almost, yeah, you can go through this kind of English, Spanish. Yeah, I, I thought a lot about this transition, this kind of constant, come, you know, going forwards and backwards um, towards, you know, English and Spanish. Yeah, and for any listeners wondering that, so that anthology is called Ten Poets of the New Generation, Out Through Blood Axe, and that was edited by Karen McCarthy-Wolf. And as you said, that was a result of, was it just the third year of the complete works, or was it in total? Uh, each each, um, each series, had, yeah, had an they, they've, they, they've got an anthology, yeah. and uh, it's it always it's published after the, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'll put a link to that anthology in the episode description, actually, in case people want to check out. There's some great writers in that book. I think we're going to finish off... Um, because we got really in deep with the language stuff <laughs> there. I think we could talk all, all day about that, I'm, I'm sure. But let's um, finish off just by 
talking about invisible presence, which you mentioned earlier, and what that is and how it came about. Yeah, basically, invisible presence um, came out out of the Complete Works experience. Um, me and Natalie Tetzlia talked about the idea of opening up, you know, the game for British Latino poets. Uh, by being the only British Latino in the Complete Works, I felt like, and knowing that there were so many really good writers and poets, sort of unknown in the UK, we felt like it would be a great idea to start a sort of a mini Complete Works for the um, for these poets. So we embarked in this kind of project, and um, and we luckily we got funding from Arts Council. But basically now we, we are working with 10 amazing writers and poets. They're not only poets, they are, as I say, writers, fiction writers. Um, there's an actor, there's, um, you know, it's, it's very uh, varied, the, the group. Uh, and really interesting, we've got first generation Latinos, we've got second generation uh, Latinos, um, writers who were born here uh, with Latin American parents. Um, most of them are bilingual. Some write mostly in English and very little Spanish, and some write in Spanish with some English. It's really fascinating. Uh, so the idea is to, when well, we're going to work with them for almost a year, there's going to be um, workshops, we've got uh, guests coming um, and giving uh, talks, uh, and workshops like Sarah Perry, the writer, Cayo Cingoni, uh, Keith Jarrett, myself, and Natalie, and some other poets who are going to be part of, of it. And then we've got a few uh, events coming up. The main event will be the one on the 23rd of June at the Roundhouse. And um, it will be a, a big showcase uh, for, for the poets to, um, you know, to, to read in, 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 this, in this space. And then there will be more events coming up, probably the second part of the year, at schools, uh, community centres and hopefully embassies. So it's quite a lot of activities and, and events. Um, so we're really excited about this. Yeah. yeah, one of the members has previously been a guest. So those who have already listened to episode 86 will recognise uh, Carlos Mauricio Rojas from that podcast is also a part of Invisible Presence. For those who want to check out maybe one, one more writer, you can go and find episode 86. It was one, I used to do three-part episodes. They were quite complicated, but in the episode description are start times for each of the individual guests. So if you just want to go and check out Carlos's work, you can go and do that. There will be a link in the episode description as well. One question about that project, because you mentioned about how, how you perhaps felt more part of something larger when you started the complete works as opposed to slap mm -hmm. the, uh, mm -hmm. the first collective you remember or one of the earlier collectives you're a member of. How has the difference between those two um, collectives informed how you've shaped Invisible Presence? I think the, the first collective, as I said before, it felt quite ghettoized. Although we were all from different parts of South America, it was mostly in Spanish. And after the complete works, I realised that it's, it's actually very important to reach a wider audience. And also to work a lot on craft and what, you know, work with your poems and your, your texts and, and, and explore different avenues of your work. With the first collective, it was mostly reading, uh, readings that we would organise um, and very little workshops. We didn't do many workshops. Obviously, with the Complete Works, it's all about developing your own craft and your skills and your confidence and um, so you know I realized that this is crucial it's really important 
Um, so that's why in the Invisible Presence we're organising lots of workshops. We already have a few and seminars, you know, as well as uh, readings. So it's all, all part of the same thing. And the idea is to create this sort of uh, collective, a new collective for, for these poets. Uh, and, and hopefully we'll get more, you know, we will get a second edition um, in the future. So we will add more, more poets, more writers to this, to this uh, family. That sounds like a really great idea. Mm. Um, I'm really eager to follow that mm. and links to where people can find Visible Presence will be also be in the episode description. I think it's easier to do it that way than read out web addresses yeah. on audio. It, as I said, it's been really fascinating talking, but we're running out of time. So I think we're going to finish with a third and final poem, please, Leo. So I'm going to read uh, a short poem called Peregrination. And um, this is a, a poem that appeared in my first collection in Spanish. I did the translation in English and I reworked again. And I'm really fond of this poem. It's a very, very short poem, Peregrination. I crossed the bridge. There was nothing. One cup of cold coffee, one coin from Argentina, an eyeball on a plate. My mother singing, me olvidé de vivir. I turn back, gather my things. I'm always so pleased when other poets write about eyeballs. I feel like it's not only me, as my wife keeps pointing out. Um, thank you very much, Leo. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, it's great. That was Leo Boyx. Do check out Invisible Presence and the writers that have been part of the three iterations of the Complete Works Poetry Programme. There are some wonderful poets over there to discover. So next up is Chrissy Williams in conversation with Aman Haider. Chrissy is a poet and editor and her debut collection Bear came out with Blood Axe Books in 2017. Earlier this year, Chrissy invited a few poets to take part in a series of interviews for her blog in which she asked all of the participants the same 12 questions, asking them to reflect on their debut collections roughly a year after publication link to Chrissy's blog in the episode description. It's a fascinating series of interviews featuring former podcast guests Kairani Baroka and Rishi Dastadar alongside others. I really love the format of the interviews and the range of answers given to the repeated questions really highlights the differences and similarities regarding the experience of first-time publication. And while I chat to a lot of writers about their first collection, there's an unspoken trust between Chrissy and her interviewee which I can't really replicate. And this is because she's in the same position and I was keen to capture that in audio form as there's quite a small window of opportunity for this series as Chrissy moves further from her own debut collection and you know, into the future and that. Our aim was to replicate the format of the original interviews. So it's fairly quick fire with Chrissy being very disciplined and not interjecting. I think it works well Though all three of us probably wish there was more time to chat. Here's Chrissy and Aman. Coats. My parents in the playground playing follow the leader. I take my father aside. He says, my father says. I take my mother aside. She says, my father says. We walk through school, me between them, their small hands reaching up to mine. 
They are given messages to carry between classrooms. The RR you get in squirrel is an English sound they don't have. At lunchtime, I see Mr. Speedy take off his jumper. His shirt rides up. I come out to them. They are looking to see who has eaten the mash. Yesterday, when they were clearing their plates, my father was scolded for accidentally dropping his cutlery into the food bin. The light wasn't open, they say. Their drawings are pinned to a notice board. They point out which houses are theirs. I don't recognise them. These are the pictures they grow up in. Thank you. Um, really... Thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, okay, I'm going to go straight into the questions then. Absolutely. The first one is, how long did it take you to put the manuscript together for this first collection, for At Hajj? I would say it took about or around three years to put poems together. Um, I think some of the poems were written longer than three years ago. Which, what's the oldest, do you think? <laughs> um, some were written during my... Um, master's degree so that was in um, maybe 2005-2006 so it's quite a while ago now maybe a decade old. That seems quite common there's always like a handful of very yeah yeah the same thing um, and how much how much the second how much did it change after Tom at Pend in the Margins accepted it how much did it change? There was quite a lot of shuffling of poems in and out mostly by me I'd say that the sort of the shape of the collection I didn't find that sort of until I sort of delivered it to Tom. So so I guess I guess there was quite a lot of changing and shifting and poems sort of slipping in and out. Yeah, that's sort of how it came together. Okay. I'm actually gonna ask and I'm going off script already. No, it's terrible. It. So like the long poem, the Hajj pieces that run through the book, was that something that was in the manuscript from the beginning or did that come in later? Like I, I sort of imagined it just as a sort of a more, say, a more traditional collection as just being poems. But then I quite liked the just the way it sort of flowed through with these poems, these sort of more discrete poems interspersed within this sort of the larger prose poem long section. So, yeah, yeah, initially it was um, it was going to be discrete poems, but then it, it changed from that. Yeah, mm. that's really that's really interesting. It's really striking feature of the book I think the way that it keeps coming back to that okay wait I'll go back on script back on script it was your first collection it came out last year how do you feel about it now I'd say the, the book has receded um, a little just because of the time has passed and that because I've been writing new things mm. so the new poems have been sort of they've, they've they've been at the front recently and the collection has been sort of behind them slightly just picking up on what you were saying before what I do sort of remember whenever I think about the collection um, and then whenever I see it on a bookshelf, I just just think about it. I always think of the shape of it. I always think of the long prose poem section, as we were just discussing, with these sort of singular poems in between. And that sort of really s sort of has stayed with me. In, in a way, what I was what I was trying to do or what has come out has been to sort of write about sort of these discrete experiences and then also write something long that's quite sort of processual. And I like the, the sort of contradiction between those two. I always find with writing, it's um, I'm always trying to do contradictory things, always wanting to do contradictory things. I want to do this, but then I also want to do this. So whenever I think about the book now, that's always what sort of comes back to me. It feels really like that reading it, the, the kind of not wanting, not wanting to commit to one particular viewpoint. How have readers responded to the book? 
The readers I know best, obviously, are my friends and my family, and they've been incredibly supportive with the book. I, I've only done a few readings of the work from this book, and um, the readers that I've met have been very positive, and that's been really, um, really boring for me, and it's been it's been really nice. The, the book has been reviewed, I'm really lucky to say, in the poetry journals. There was a review in the Sunday Times too, and they were all really... Um, the book was well received and they were really thoughtful and engaged um, reviews so I was just over the moon about that. It's always a surprise to be honest to hear that people have read the books. It's interesting that mix of like you don't even know if you will get reviews and then when you get reviews or you realise it's you don't always want to look or to know it's a weird double-edged um, nightmare. Um, okay in terms of the reviews and stuff that you're talking about, so the next question is, technically, how has the broader poetry community responded to the book? And do you keep track of these things, or does Tom at Pen of the Margins, or...? Um, they, they send me reviews, um, which is really nice. I'd say also, in terms of the broader poetry community, um, I, I guess my publisher is the main sort of conduit to that, so that's really nice. I've been aware, too, that some of the poems have been tweeted. Two of them were tweeted by Carvey Akbar, the American poet. Oh, yeah. And that was just a complete surprise to me, and a really lovely surprise. So it's been it's been it's been really lovely because you never know how the book's going to be received, or even if there are going to be reviews. So um, it's just been a really lovely surprise. <laughs> cool. The next question is kind of connected to this stuff as well, and I've tried to word it as vaguely as possible <laughs> so that you can answer it in whatever way you want. What do you think about prizes in this whole context? I follow prizes and I often find it's a good way of finding new books to read, just books I haven't heard of that might be on prize list. Mm -hmm. I would say I don't write or rather this book wasn't written with a prize in mind and I think it would be quite maybe misleading to if I was giving advice to someone I would say don't think of a prize at the end of it, think of the poems because I think that's important. I do enter single poems into competitions which have prizes out there and but none of none of these poems were were written with a prize in mind. Um, I think the answers to that question were probably the ones that varied most dramatically on in terms of the blog. I think, and probably says more about me as writing the questions as well in terms of, I don't know, nervousness about validation or, or all of this stuff is me trying to figure out what my relationship with validation should be. Anyway, right, on to nicer things. Have you been writing poems since the book came out? Um, I have been writing poems since the book came out. I've found I've, I wanted to continue to write and the things I wanted to explore. I've been interested in this sort of dynamic between, um, I guess, queer sexuality and also being the child of immigrants and sort of the, the intersection between those two things and sort of the, the commonalities between those two things, the, the inability to say certain things the habit of keeping quiet. So so those things have continued to interest me. Um, and so I've been writing poems sort of more on that theme. Not, sorry, this sounds really contrived and thought out, but it's just been, it's, it's just been the way the poems, have, the poems have come out. It's it's sort of hard sometimes when you're talking about writing poems, you sort of have things in mind you might want to write about, but then also you, well, I, I hope that I sort of follow the poems down the path and I don't know where the end might be. Yeah, I guess I'm exploring. That's why I want to say I'm exploring. <laughs> it doesn't sound contrived at yeah. all. It sounds really focused and interesting. 
What do you think are the different pressures on you now as someone who has, in quote marks, published a first collection? <laughs> well, my writing happens in isolation. All the poems were just with me. I was working on them. And then when the book comes out, it becomes pub public. People you don't know read the book. And, and then um, you have to sort of step out with the book to an extent, I guess, mm. and read and discuss. So that's just, I guess, perhaps maybe it's not a pressure, but it's just a difference from being in your room and writing the poems to accompanying the poems out into the world. Uh, another pressure is perhaps that another book that doesn't exist yet might follow this book. That's, I guess, another pressure. It sounds like you've got a really clear area of stuff that you're writing about now to, to, move, to build towards whatever the next publication or thing that, you know, body of work that you put together is. I know some of the other people answering this, several of them use the phrase difficult second album syndrome. It sounds like you've already got a sort of area that you're coming through and that's really, that's really encouraging and inspiring, I think. Oh, thanks. I, I would also say that there's a lot of and I have a lot of uncertainty about that future work as well. <laughs> yeah. It sounds great that I sound really confident about it, but there's a lot of uncertainty is like right, infused all the way, all the way through. <laughs> Hooray! Um, <laughs> that actually makes me feel even better. So, And I don't know what it's going to be at the end. Like I have, what they say, the story you finish is never the story you start. So this is my starting point. I don't know what it's going to be at the end. It might be something completely different. So, mm. yeah. Oh. But you have a starting point and that's, yeah, that's awesome. This question is the one where I don't beat about the bush at all and really ask like the thing that's kind of driving me mad at the, time, at the moment. How much do you need the validation of your work by others? I have thought about this a lot and I think the point I try, always try and get to is that, I hope this doesn't make it sound so easy, but that I'm, I'm happy with the poem myself and that sitting alone with the poem and I'm happy with it then I think is an important step but of course there's uh, there's a lot more to it than that <laughs> that's being published in journals and having having a book published or the the process towards book publication which is very fraught for all different kinds of reasons so um I would say I would always come back to just that point where well I'm happy with the poems because all those other things outside of it you have no control over <laughs> for example whether a poem gets accepted into a journal or whether a collection is published. You, you sort of don't really have control over those things really, but you, with yourself and with your writing, I don't know, that's a relationship which maybe you can work towards being happy with. <laughs> yeah. If I can go back a bit, um, what I also wanted to say about having a full collection published is that it's public in a way that having a poem published in a journal isn't, mm. in that when you um, have a poem published in the journal, you're sort of part of a larger landscape of other poems. That's sort of comforting in that way. But a collection is just sort of you. So, yeah, it's scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I empathise a lot with the, like, trying to get to a place where you feel at peace about the stuff that you have no control over. Like, that's the, that's the trick, isn't it? <laughs> that's the goal. That's the, the goal, really. I would say also um, writing new things or just writing something else really helps. Well, I found it really helps with that question in mm. that so I'm not spending too much time just thinking about whether one poem is good, I'm moving on to the next one. And I get I guess that's fraught too because you're like, should I how long should I be spending on each poem and I'm not spending enough time on each one. 
but um, I found in writing new things always always sort of helps, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, which poems or poets are currently inspiring you? We were talking about this just before, but I recently read Mary Jean Chan's A Hurry of English. Mm. And it, within that pamphlet is the poem Chopsticks, which has been published, was published a while ago now. But I felt very sort of close to that poem, and that poem was very familiar to me. I recently read or heard on the poetry magazine podcast um, Dunner Smith re reading um, How Many of Us Have Them. Mm. And um, I really enjoyed listening to that. S slightly away from poetry or sort of into poetic language, I was reading Clarice Lispector recently, um, Hour of the Star, and Agua Viva, which are full of this very sort of poetic, prose poetry kind of language, which I just found intriguing. Poetry absolutely comes out of reading. For me, reading is absolutely the centre of of where the writing comes from and the, like I feel I'm a reader first like that is the, the central thing yeah. I, I don't think I could write without reading I feel like I want to pull that out as like the quote for this <laughs> <laughs> interview or something okay what what advice would you give to someone who was about to publish their first collection that's a tricky question I think I'm probably quite full of anxiety about being published and anxiety about writing so I would say um just enjoy it and you're writing because you're enjoying the poems and yeah just in enjoy the writing and um find what you love in it I don't know I'd say go with your gut I think that's always good advice <laughs> trust your instincts I think the advice to enjoy it is simple but often gets forgotten about in the as someone who also has a lot of anxiety around these issues actually just trying to yeah enjoy the moment that it happens in yeah cool okay right this is the last question and it's probably quite a big question but we'll see what is ultimately the point for you of writing and publishing poems that's a big question initially when i <laughs> when i thought about that question I was thinking I don't have enough experience to answer it yet. Um, I would say, I was thinking about the writing process and what is the writing process? So you, you try and write a poem and then at some point you think, okay, this is okay and I feel like this poem has been a success or, or you, you, you come to a kind of end point. And then when you go and write the next poem, none of that ex previous experience is necessarily helpful in helping you write the next poem. You sort of have to go back to zero. Um, I often find that this is my experience and I feel like that might be the meaning that you're always having to find your way anew, you're always having to um, find your way again and I feel like that is that is perhaps the meaning, <laughs> the meaning of it. I, I guess the, the fact that you will never really know how it happens, you might have um, a process that helps you or you might have a way of doing it but it's never really, you always have to go back to zero <laughs> in a way. And I think that's where the meaning is that, I don't know, that the knowledge is always fleeting. Um, in, in terms of publishing poems, I think that's a hard question too. <laughs> I'm not sure I have a, an answer for that one. Um, I guess it, it sort, of, sort of does come back to validation, having a collection together. And you're also, you're adding a, a book of poetry to sort of a larger landscape of poetry. Also, um, when I'm reading, I, f I think sometimes I'm looking for, for stories that maybe I've heard that I haven't found in literature. And I think part of like the writing 
project for me is putting down stories that I haven't quite encountered elsewhere. For example, as from the poem I read um, at the beginning of this, um, which was about my parents' experience and my only experience in relation to theirs, I, I, in some respects, I don't feel I quite sort of had encountered that in other places. And so there's a desire to put that down in writing. Yes. So th those are my thoughts around that question. Thank you. No, that's really interesting. I I'm not going to interject any of my own stuff in here. That's really great. Thank you for taking the time and answering all these questions. Um, no, thank you for having me. And it was, it was a real delight to think about those questions to and to think about my answers, and it takes you right back to writing in the book, which was really nice, so thank you. Oh, yay! Well, I think to end, can, um, we ask you to read, please, to finish up with. Sure, sure. Thank you. Mohammed's mobile. I think Mohammed, peace be upon him, would have had one of those phones that aren't big or black like you sometimes get in old TV programmes. He wouldn't have had any pictures on the wallpaper because that would have been like eating pork but he might have had a tusby on the top bit because you can get tusbies which slot into the hole where the headphones go. The one I mean is the one Faran, my cousin, had. I believe the colour of the Muhammad's phone would have been white because that was the colour he liked to wear. I feel he would have written his name on the back of the phone because he was a good man. He would have kept his phone clean and washed his hands before he used it. I am certain that he would have kept his phone switched off so that he would not disturb other people. His phone would have been on vibrate. Muhammad was a good man, he looked with big black eyes, he lived in different places and both his parents died. His wife was called Khadija, she believed him first, and then Ali was second, the devil was the worst. My brother's called Muhammad, he's always in our room. He stopped watching TV and he hates middle school. My dad does not believe him and neither does my aunt. My mother would tell them, but she's in Pakistan. To make my brother happy, we go out on our bikes, we stay away from others. Eat bounties in the night. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for sticking around right until the end. Grab yourself a biscuit from the tin. If you want to find out more about the series, follow our blog or download episode transcripts, then go over to lunapoetrypodcast.com. You can also find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Lunar Poetry Podcast or on Twitter at silent underscore tongue. Don't forget, we also have an accompanying podcast, A Poem A Week, in which my wife Lizzie publishes, you guessed it, A Poem A Week. Usually read by the author themselves, but sometimes by us or a guest poet. You can find A Poem A Week on SoundCloud, iTunes and all other podcatchers. And if you, like me, love listening right to the end of podcasts and following pleas from the desperate hosts, then why not go over to iTunes and leave us a lovely review? Finally, a big thank you to Arts Council England, whose financial support has made possible this episode and all of our episode transcripts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in June with episode 114. You might be able to hear in the distance. I think that's an ice cream van playing the 18 theme tune. Ah, it's gone. Right, you lot. Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.